The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we're indeed grateful that we can come together this evening to be encouraged and strengthened by your word. We thank you that you have given us a salvation that is absolutely free that there is nothing that we can do to earn it or deserve it, and there is nothing we can do to lose it. Father, we thank you that you have indeed prepared an inheritance for us and that you are training us in this life to be ready to rule and reign with our Lord Jesus Christ in the next. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that we would be responsive to the teaching of God the Holy Spirit, that we would clearly focus on your word during this time of study and concentration, uh, that we would not be distracted by the things that are going to happen tomorrow or the next day or what's already happened today, but that we might be uh, able to concentrate without distraction on the teaching of your word this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, one announcement, update, before we get started. Several people have asked about Ulan and the latest, and as you know by now, Every week it can change. We just never know. He's still in Berlin. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's not in uh, Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan. And the latest is that he has had an opportunity to uh, address a Russian-speaking Baptist church there in Berlin, and they seem to like him and want him to hang around for a while. So they're trying to help him apply for a religious workers' visa to come there to, um, to Berlin and to work there in that church. And if they're able to pull that off, then he'll be able to stay there. So we need to continue to pray for that. Other than that, I really don't have any other information. That was the last I received from him, which was either Monday or Tuesday morning. One other update. I get these from the Berean call, and this is related to the theory of evolution. And I thought this was an interesting uh, insight. Uh, if you are familiar with evolution, they have their family tree for, the, for human ancestry. And one of the oldest uh, alleged ancestors of man is, a, is the Anthropocenes, And the, the one they found was a female, so she was dubbed Lucy. That's what this is about. And he, this article writes, this writer uh, states, the discovery of one of the most complete skeletons of an Australopithecine since Lucy has cast serious doubts on the current theories of human origins. Go figure. The 2.6 million year old fossil of Australopithecus africanus is indisputably arboreal. That means it ran through the trees. Although its 3.2 million year old ancestor Lucy who was called Australopithecus afarensis, was bipedal. In addition, James Shreve states, the only two known partial skeletons of Homo habilis, the earliest member of our genus, also have more ape-like body proportions. In other words, they're probably apes rather than men, rather than Homo sapiens. In the April 1996 annual meeting of the American Association of Physical Anthropologists, Dr. Lee Berger stated, one might say we are kicking Lucy out of the family tree. So that just means there's one less piece of evidence, but it will be some time before that will show up in any of the textbooks or any of the museums or anywhere else. So just kind of stick that in the back of your uh, notebook, and the next time you go down to the Museum of Natural Science, just look around and see if they've got Lucy in the family tree, then go to the curator and say, why don't you keep up to date here? See, I'm just a rabble rouser. I did that back in high school. I went up to the uh, uh, 
went up to University of Houston about 1969, and they still had Piltdown Man in the display in the biology department at the University of Houston. They had all the different skulls, and it had been uh, known since the early 50s that Piltdown Man was a hoax. And yet, here you have University of Houston Science Department still promoting, you know, all of these frauds. And that just gives you a clue to the integrity of uh, most evolutionists. Now, they wouldn't like me saying that, but nevertheless, that's true. Okay, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Now, last time I had built a, an environment for us to appreciate what's going on in Hebrews 2.2, and we had to stop right in the middle of that. So we were uh, building a uh, crescendo, and we stopped halfway through. So we need to back up just a little bit and sort of start over, get our uh, traction going again before we hit the center part of this passage so that we can appreciate its particular impact. So let's review briefly. We're in Hebrews 2.2. Uh, to one reads, therefore, so we see it's a conclusion from everything said from Hebrews 1.5 down to Hebrews 1.14, which focused on the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the writer has been saying is, in light of everything that we have learned from Hebrews 1.5 down to the end of he- Hebrews 1, Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. He's been elevated over the angels. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. He is going to bring in, in the future, a kingdom of righteousness. He is royalty related to the uh, title Son of David. And he is going to establish his kingdom on the earth. And in light of all of these facts, for this reason, because of these things, he draws a conclusion. We must give. That means it's not optional. That means it's mandatory. We must give the more earnest heed to the things. What things? That is the doctrine that has been taught, not only up to this point in this epistle, but everything that has been taught since the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, have, we must pay heed to the things we have heard, lest we slip our anchor and drift off course in the Christian life. This is serious, folks. The Christian life is serious. It's the most serious thing that you will be engaged in in this life. I don't know what comes second, but it's a distant second. There is nothing else more important in your life than your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's right, then it impacts everything else in your life. But if that's wrong, it's going to mess up everything else in your life. The writer goes on to say, for if, for being an explanation, now he's going to explain the significance of verse 1. For if, if is a first-class condition. Uh, and it assumes the reality of the protasis here. That's the first part of the clause. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and it did. So we'll just briefly review a couple of the exegetical points we made last time. The if there's first class, meaning that the protasis assumed to be true, that means that the word, the message, literally, that was communicated by the angels, and that's a reference to the Old Testament Revelation, the Old Testament communication uh, to Moses. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that because there's a number of passages from the Old Testament that talked about this message of divine revelation in the Old Testament and that angels were part of it. Deuteronomy 33.2 says that the Lord came with 10,000 of his literally holy ones. Acts 7.38, Stephen, in his... A final message before the Lord took him home referred to the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, probably the Lord Jesus Christ there. Acts 7.53, referring to the Jews that they received the law by the direction of angels. And then in Galatians 3.19, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels. So it is clear from the Scripture that angels were involved in the giving of revelation. So that there are 
a couple of different elements. You have the Lord Jesus Christ being the ultimate source of revelation. You have God the Holy Spirit who's the one who is initiating the revelation. It is God the Holy Spirit who oversees the process and guarantees that the prophet or the apostle writes without error in an infallible manner. It is God the Holy Spirit who is moving the prophets along according to 1 Peter 1, uh, 20 and 21. And then you have angels who are witnessing the whole process because everything that God is doing with man in human history is related to the angelic conflict. And so the angels are involved because they are standing as witnesses to God's procedures with man. It's like a huge courtroom, and everything is involved in this legal scenario. And this is why we'll see in a few minutes, when we come back, get back into our flow of thought, we'll come to Deuteronomy 32, which is Moses' parting uh, speech to the Israelites just before he went to be with the Lord, and they went into the land. And when Moses gave his final speech, he called upon heaven and earth to witness him. Now, he, when he says, oh, heavens, he's not talking about the stars and the starry sky and the galaxies because they're not personal. He is talking about the angels that inhabit the heavens. When he talks about the earth, he's not talking about the physical uh, dirt. He's talking about the people who inhabit the earth. He is calling upon all of creation and the Persons, the different elements of personality, the angels and human beings, as witnesses. What are, what's a witness? A witness is a legal term for a testator, someone who is giving legal evidence in a courtroom trial. And so that's the role of the angels. And we'll see it not only in Deuteronomy 32, but we'll see it in a couple of the other passages we go through in the Old Testament, that the angels are present as as Witnesses, courtroom witnesses. Hebrews 2 2 goes on to say, For if the message uh, revealed through angels proved, and here it's the aorist middle indicative of Genemai indicating something that comes into existence. Literally, it should read, If the message communicated through angels came, uh, uh, came to be steadfast or became steadfast or established. And every uh, transgression, that word, incidentally, before we move on, I pointed out last time that that word steadfast in the Greek is babaios, and that shows up again in the next verse. And so the writer's clearly drawing connections here between the, what he says in verse 2 and what he's going to say in verse 3. Uh, in every transgression, that is every wrongdoing, every violation of God's uh, absolute standard, and every disobedience of God received a just reward. And the word, therefore, reward is, means recompense. And I pointed out last time that this verse should be translated, For if the message spoken through the intermediate agency of angels became unalterable, and it did, and furthermore, every violation and careless infraction, treating the word lightly, treating the word carelessly, if every violation and careless infraction received just recompense, that is in terms of the Old Testament revelation, if the Mosaic law, if the infraction of the Mosaic law, or if treating it lightly received the kind of penalties that the Jews received in the Old Testament, then in light of that, how can we neglect the great salvation that we have today? That's his argument. Now, let's go back and see. This is where we finished last time. Let's go back and see how God recompensed, repaid, punished Israel when they treated the law lightly. Okay? Because, see, the, the, the trap we fall into as believers is we think, well, it's covered by grace. All I have to do is confess my sin. I'll just move on. God's going to deal with me in grace. And we deceive ourselves into thinking that divine discipline for the carnality in our lives is not going to be all that tough. We can handle it. Well, let's see what happens with Israel. So turn in your Bible to Leviticus chapter uh, 26. Leviticus chapter 26. We ran through this last time, but I want to go back and pick it up again and 
point out the same thing just by way of review to make sure everybody here is on board. We have some new people tonight, so we need to make sure everybody is up to speed here. Leviticus 26 spells out the blessings that God promises Israel for obedience to the law and the cursing or the discipline that God promised them if they're disobedient to the law. The blessings begin to be spelled out in verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them. See, it's not just learning them. It's not just having a great statute notebook or commandment notebook or doctrinal notebook. It is learning them to the degree that it changes the way you live. You perform them. You keep them. Then, as a consequence, I will give you rain in its season. Isn't that great meteorology? I wonder what Charlie Clough would think about that. See, notice that in, in, in the real universe in which we live, there is this direct cause-effect correlation between the physical universe and the spiritual realm so that human disobedience would affect what happened meteorologically in Israel. Now, you, you can't learn that in a science book. You can't learn that in any uh, empirical studies or in the laboratory. It goes back to showing the limitations of human knowledge. It's the same principle I pointed out when we studied the fall, that when God created Adam and the woman and placed them in the garden, there were a lot of things they could learn about the trees. They could talk about the different kinds of trees, the different shapes of the leaves, the different uh, sizes of the trees. Some were tall and thin, some were broad and bushy, some produced big fruit, some small fruit, all kinds of empirical data. But there was one thing they couldn't learn, and that was that if they ate from one particular tree, they would die spiritually. The only way they could properly interpret the physical data was if they had an interpretive grid provided from direct divine revelation. Same thing is true for Israel. If they're an agricultural society and they're farmers, God says specifically, if things are going well and things are productive and you have a good economy and your farms are producing, then that's the result of obedience. But if you're disobedient, just the opposite will happen. There'll be a drought. The crops will dry up. You will not have productivity because I am disciplining you. So there's a direct correlation there between their economic prosperity and and the lack of it. Now, that was true for Israel. This is part of the Mosaic Law. Now, this is really important to understand. It's not true today. Why is it not true today? Because... The Mosaic Law was a temporary covenant for Israel. This wasn't true for the Moabites. This wasn't true for the Assyrians. This wasn't true for anybody living up in Western Europe. This was only true for Israel because this is a legal contract between God and the Jews. Now, there may be certain parallels that we can see in history because that's the way God built things in terms of the divine institutions. But that's not what's happening here. This is talking about what God expects of his covenant people, the nation Israel. So he promises rain and agricultural productivity and secure borders in verses 3 through 5. Verse 6, he goes on to explain that there will be peace. There won't be warfare. He will eliminate predatory animals. The wild animals are going to be removed in verse 6, and there won't be military invasion. The sword will not go through your land. Now, is that true today? Not at all. Just watch the news on any given day. Now you have Jews against the Jewish army, the IDF, against the settlers in Gaza. Just a terrible thing going on right now, giving up the land and retreating. And it's not going to work. It just gives more opportunity to the terrorists. What people, especially in this country and in the West, do not understand is the root issue that's going on in Israel is a spiritual issue. It's a war between the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the false God of Islam. And the false God of Islam is ultimately Satan, and Satan is out to destroy the Jews. Now, I don't have time to go through the analysis I did about four years ago when I went through Daniel. And if you are interested, go back and listen to it. But I am convinced from my study of the Quran 
that the that Allah is just a pseudonym for Satan because Allah hates the Jews. So Allah cannot be confused with the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible called out the Jews. The God of the Bible loves Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the descendants, the physical descendants. The Jews are the apple of his eye. So that can't be the same God that is known as Allah. And Allah hates just hates the Jews. And it's clear from reading the Quran that at the end of time, uh, the servants of Allah are called upon to destroy, to annihilate every Jew and every Christian. The Quran, in fact, says that the rocks and the trees will cry out, Here, there's a Jew hiding behind me. Over here, there's a Christian hiding behind me. Slay them. This is the so-called peaceful religion of Islam. Don't buy the lie. This is nothing more than PR at its very worst. And there's a number of excellent analyses. In fact, one of the best is done by Dr. Ergen Kanner. Dr. Kanner grew up, was raised a Muslim. He is now the uh, provost of the seminary at Liberty University, has his Ph.D. in theology. He was converted to Christianity when he was 19 years of age. And he has, and his brother, who also is a believer and has his PhD in theology, are seminary professors and speakers, and they've written a couple of books. And uh, Dr. Kanner is going to be the speaker at the pre-trib conference this December at the banquet on Monday night and another time. And I put some brochures down here on the table for those of you who might be interested in going to the pre-trib conference this year. And I talked with Tommy today, and Tommy and I are working on. Uh, he had had a chance to talk to Dr. Kanner because he's been out of town this summer, but we're working on him to see if we can't corral him to come and be the other speaker at our prophecy conference next May. So you, you can just pray that we can work that out, and he will um, validate everything I just said about Islam. So that's what we're working on. It's important to understand these things in light of biblical prophecy. There will be peace in the land if they're obedient. If they're disobedient, it will be characterized by war. Furthermore, there will be an intimate fellowship with God in verse, described in verses 11 to 13. And then starting in verse 16, there's a description of five stages of divine discipline. It starts with terror, health problems, disease, and your enemies will profit from your work. That's in verses 16 and 17. Then in verse 18, we move into the second stage. Second stage, and after this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. See, God's negative. He's not positive like all the uh, religious uh, uh, pastors who are into health and wealth and prosperity today want to make God out to be. God is very negative towards sin. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, and your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. So there is drought and famine, economic recession. Then in the third stage of uh, discipline, we have an interesting description here. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on seven times more plagues. I also will send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number. Now, I pointed out last time that the real ironic thing is to watch what's happening in this country. Because of the, eco, the modern uh, eco-pagans who are out there operating on an evolutionary viewpoint of reality and an evolutionary viewpoint of environmentalism, they want to reintroduce like the red wolf up into uh, Montana and black bear into Arkansas and Connecticut and other places like that. Well, it's gotten worse than that. You see, God says that a mark of prosperity in a nation is that we remove these terrible animals so that there's peace in the land and people can farm without worrying about uh, these predatory animals. Well, according to an article today that I downloaded hot off the Internet... Smoking off of foxnews.com, dateline Thursday, August 18th. Denver, this is from the AP. 
lion stalking deer in the stubble of a Nebraska cornfield, elephants trumpeting across Colorado's high plains, cheetahs slouching through the West Texas scrub, prominent ecologists are floating an audacious plan that sounds like a Jumanji sequel, transplant African wildlife to the Great Plains of North America. Don't you love it? Somebody emailed that to me today and said, you know, only somebody with Bible doctrine could really appreciate the humor here. It's almost like a Saturday Night Live skit. See, the more people get immersed into paganism, what do they do? They worship nature. It's been that way ever since the Tower of Babel and before. And we've studied this again and again and again. Now, there is a biblical view of the right use of the environment and and uh, responsible care of God's creation. But it is not the glorification of creation or the uh, attempt by man to preserve creation. That is God's job. And God makes it very clear, even in the Mosaic Law, that He would, if Israel was obedient, He would remove these predatory animals from their environment. So obedience to God's Word does change your environment. It is going to change the ecosystem. It is going to take these animals out of the way. They're going to perhaps even become extinct because that's God's plan. There's nothing wrong with this. But when you're operating on an evolutionary model where you have deified and glorified creation and and the creature in man, that it's man's responsibility to take care of the creation. Otherwise, oh my, it'll all fall apart and we'll have global warming, which incidentally... Uh, is, is another fraud foisted on man today. And uh, we had a great presentation at the Conservative Theological Society meeting last month by Charlie Clough, who, if those of you who don't know him, he is the uh, chief meteorologist at Aberdeen Proving Ground. And he was giving some fascinating facts and data uh, about the, uh, uh, the analysis that's producing all the global warming conclusions and uh, everybody wanting to get on, the key, on board with the Kyoto Agreement and the fact that the news media never mentions the fact that there's another protest site out there where over 18,000 scientists protest all of the conclusions related to global warming, protest the conclusions uh, that back up the Kyoto Accord, and we never hear that side of it from anybody. And he showed some uh, graphs related to temperature changes, and the graph that you often find the uh, global warming advocates present shows that there's a gradual warm-up in terms of the average temperature in Manhattan since 1855. And, ooh, that really, you put that graph on on the overhead and everybody looks at it and says, wow, the average temperature in Manhattan is about six or eight degrees higher than it was 150 years ago. What's causing that? Must be global warming. But if you go 40 miles north of Manhattan to West Point, where there hasn't been urban sprawl, where you don't have the concrete jungle that retains warmth and thus affects the, uh, the temperature that's taken in the city, you go 40 miles north to West Point, and the temperature, the average temperature at West Point isn't flat. It has actually declined just a minute amount. And there are other places you go on the planet, and you don't have any global warming, any temperature change in the upper atmosphere. It's just another example of junk science that's based on evolutionary presuppositions. And you see, if your presupposition is false, your conclusions are going to be false. It doesn't matter how intricate your logic is. It doesn't matter how accurate your logic is. If your starting point is wrong, your conclusions will be wrong. And so we're making all kinds of decisions that are actually devastating. In fact, from uh, analysis that I heard uh, in the last couple of weeks related to the tiles on the, uh, on the orbiter, the uh, reason we didn't hear about this back in the 80s or the 90s, we didn't have problems with tiles falling off or, or any of these other things, is because up until 1998, they used a Freon-based substance for the glue and for the tiles. But the EPA outlawed Freon in 98, so NASA had to be environmentally friendly, so they had to come up with another uh, chemical base to make their tiles, and it's not as stable as the Freon base. 
So once again, man approaches science from an evolutionary viewpoint. It changes the way he draws conclusions, and it becomes actually dangerous to human environment. This is why theology matters. Ideas matter. The Word of God matters. It makes a difference in the real world in which we live. Well, that's enough preaching. Stage four. Leviticus 26, 23 to 26 says that if you disobey me, there will be military invasion and dominance, disease, plagues, and economic depression. That will eventuate in stage five which is described in verses 27 to 39. Military occupation. Foreign powers will defeat you, overrun you, lay siege to you. There will, because you're under siege, the mothers will eat their children, fathers will eat their babies in order to survive. It will be horrible. Uh, I will come in, God says, and destroy the idols and the false religious temples. The cities will be destroyed, and the people will be removed from the land, that is, the land that God promised Abraham. And they will be taken out of the land and scattered. But, of course, there's the promise of ultimate restoration, which is part of what we're seeing today when Israel being restored to the land. Uh, Verses uh, 40 and following give us the promise of restoration. Anyway, this lays the groundwork. The Mosaic Law laid the basis for Israel. This is the contract that God gives them. You obey me, you're in the land, there's prosperity. If you disobey me, the most horrible things are going to happen to you in history. Now, let's flip over a couple of chapters to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Now, remember, when God gave the Mosaic Law to Israel, according to Galatians and according to Acts 7, angels were part of the process. They were witnesses. Now, we come to Deuteronomy chapter 32, which is Moses' reiteration of the law and his final message to Israel, his song, this is sort of a national anthem for Israel. It is predictive prophecy, even though it's given in the past tense. It's what's called as a prophetic perfect. The future was so certain that it was spoken of as if it had already happened. In 32.1, Moses said, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. What's he doing? He's saying, Heavenly beings and earthly beings bear witness to this. This is a legal document. And you are the courtroom witnesses to the veracity of how God is going to deal with Israel. And in the first part of the chapter, it spells out the blessings. But then when we get down to verse 15, we start getting into the curses again, the discipline. And it talks about how Israel, known as Jeshurun in this passage, grew arrogant. They grew fat and they kicked. And they became arrogant and they rejected God. And then in verse 17, they sacrificed to demons. You see, idol worship isn't just the worship of wood and stone. There are demons that are behind those false religions. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. And so he goes on to outline their problems in verse 20. He specifies the judgment. He said, that is God, said, I will hide my face from them. Now, when did God hide his face from Israel? Well, for the last 2,000 years as they went through persecution after persecution, driven out of England, driven out of Spain, driven into the ghettos of Eastern Europe, and then rounded up by the Nazis and taken into the prisoner of war camps. And as they cried out to God from Auschwitz and from Dachau, and from all the other prisoner of war, I mean prison camps and all the other torture chambers, God hid his face from Israel. That's exactly what he promised. God is true to his word. I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. That's Romans 11. I'm going to break off the branches, the natural branches of the olive tree, and I am going to, I am going to splice in the wild olive branches so that it will be a cause to the natural olive branches to finally look back and say, I want the blessing that I was rightly due. In other words, God is calling out Gentiles into the body of Christ today, and eventually it's going to cause the Jews in jealousy to turn back to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is this recognition 
of this horrible punishment that God brings upon Israel. That's why we're warned in Hebrews 2, 2 and 3. How can we neglect a great salvation if this happened to the Jews? Then I want you to turn over to the next chapter, the next verse, Joshua. Joshua chapter 23. Joshua chapter 23. This is Joshua's parting statement to the Jews. Now, most of the uh, conquest generation has died, so he is addressing their children. And this is his farewell address. And he reiterates these same warnings. He says in verse 11, Therefore take careful heed to yourselves that you what? Love the Lord your God. Remember I've pointed out many times lately that the theme of Deuteronomy is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and keep His Word. How do you know you love God? You know you love God because you're obedient to His Word. It's the same thing Jesus said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's the same thing John says in 1 John. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's not if you love me, you'll feel good. You'll feel all warm and fuzzy inside. You'll have an emotional uplift. You'll sing great little praise choruses and everybody will hug each other. It doesn't say that. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. To keep His commandments, you have to know His commandments. To know His commandments, you have to study His commandments. To study His commandments, you have to sit in a pew and listen to somebody who is trained in the original languages of the Word of God, teach the Word of God in biblical exposition. Not just give you little homilies on how to live your life, but to explain how the Word of God changes how you think about everything in life, from politics to law to education to physics to geometry to biology, to zoology, to business ethics, everything has changed. The Word of God is not just a little story about how to get saved. It's primarily a story about how saved people live in this world to fulfill the original dominion mandate that God gave Adam, and that is to uh, exercise dominion over the birds of the, of the air and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field and to bring into c- control under God's Word everything in, uh, in the earth, on the earth. Joshua 23, Joshua, I mean, yes, Joshua says that you need to pay attention to yourself that you love the Lord your God or else. Verse 12, see, there's that warning again. Or else, if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, that's the Canaanites, they they hadn't killed them all, there were still a few left. They had disobeyed God, they didn't annihilate every man, woman, and child. They acted like a bunch of modern liberals and said, well, we just can't kill them all, they're they're, they're just such nice folks, that's such a sweet little baby, he's innocent. God said, no, he's not innocent. He's a product of this pagan line, and he needs to be killed. The whole line needs to be blotted out. But when you operate on, on human viewpoint, you don't understand the horrible nature of sin. And so you live in self-deception. And God said, take every one of them out, annihilate every one of them. And he says, if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you and make marriages with them, never marry an unbeliever. If you're single, don't ever date an unbeliever. You never know where your emotions are going to take you. Don't even become close friends with an unbeliever. Their pagan views, their opinions, their ideas are going to influence you. And I hate to say this, but it's even true about believers who aren't operating on the Word of God. They can be as dangerous to your life through their human viewpoint paganism as an unbeliever. Because you think, well, they're a believer, so it doesn't really matter. They're saved. Yeah, but their soul's loaded with garbage and they influence you because you've, you've, you've let the camel's nose under the tent, as it were. So Joshua warned them, don't make marriages with them. But that's what they would do, and they would go into them and they to you. And I know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you. That's what happened in the book of Judges. At the beginning of the book of Judges, they were spiritually successful and mature and victorious. At the end of the book of Judges, they're led by a womanizer named Samson who can't get anything right, who's only concerned about satisfying his own physical appetites. And the Jews were living in a culture that was visibly no different from the Canaanites they were supposed to annihilate. They had become completely paganized in those years. 
verse 13 goes on to say, But they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. So again, there's this warning that you dare not disobey God or there are horrible consequences. Now let's jump ahead a few centuries to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter... Well, let's start with Isaiah chapter 1. Now remember, Isaiah was a prophet, and the role of the prophet was to act as a legal prosecutor for God, standing in God's place, arguing the case of the law. This is what the law says. You violated the law. God said these are the legal consequences, and I'm announcing them to you. That was the role of the prophet. The prophet, as part of that, foretold events. But the role of the prophet was not primarily not a predictor of future events. He was one who announced consequences for disobedience to the Mosaic Law. That was his primary, uh, primary role. And that is why often these are given in what is called a reeve format. A reeve is a Hebrew term for a lawsuit. And that's how they were presented. It's a technical legal document. Okay, Isaiah chapter 1. Starts off. Now tell me where you've heard this before. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. This is in verse 2. Where did you hear that before? You heard that in Deuteronomy 32. You think maybe there's a connection? Could be. You see, he's, he's making this specific connection right up front in the second verse that what he's doing is merely an extension of what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. That's Israel. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. So right away we know that that Israel is getting ready to to have a God's legal case brought against them. Look down at verse 4. Alas, sinful nation! A people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken Yahweh. That's Yahweh, the name specifically associated with the covenant God made with them. They have forsaken Yahweh. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. In verse 7, your country is desolate. What does that remind you of? That's going back to the third cycle and fourth cycle of discipline. See, everything that is said here is merely an extrapolation of those stages of discipline, and Isaiah is reminding the nation of what's going to happen. Then we skip over a couple of chapters to Isaiah chapter 3. For behold the Lord, the Lord of armies, literally, Yahweh of the armies, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. What's going on here? That fourth stage of discipline, economic collapse, economic catastrophe. He also takes away in verses 2 and 3 all of the leaders of the land, those who have any wisdom. See, God gives nations the leaders that they deserve so that when a nation goes into rebellion against Bible doctrine, and this nation is in rebellion against the Word of God, when a nation goes into rebellion against the truth, God is going to give them the kind of political leaders that they deserve, political leaders who have no sense of of freedom, no understanding of liberty, no understanding of absolutes, no understanding of how to properly interpret the Constitution, no understanding of what is involved in, in a war against terrorism, no understanding of how to unify a country in such a war, because they are divorced from reality. And that's what happened in Israel, and that's why God is announcing this judgment in Isaiah chapter 3. And then we see another uh, installment of this in chapter 29. There's a woe to Jerusalem. Isaiah 29, verse 1. Woe to Ariel. To Ariel, that's another name for uh, Jerusalem. It means Lion of God. It's also the name of Arnold Fruchtenbaum's ministry, which I just heard is moving back to San Antonio. 
Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add year to year, let feasts come around. Yet I will distress Ariel. There shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as Ariel. God is saying, I am the source of all of this suffering that's going on right now. He's the source of the suffering that the Jews went through in the Holocaust. Why? It's divine discipline on the nation for their disobedience to Him. Now, have I built my case? Let's go to Hebrews 2. So when we get to Hebrews 2, we read this, what almost appears as an innocuous little statement. For if the message spoken through the angels became established, how did it become established? Through the constant application of it by the Lord Jesus Christ in His pre-incarnate state as the Lord of the armies in the Old Testament. And every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. How shall you escape if you neglect your salvation? Let's drive the point home. If God lowered the boom on Israel like this, if He picked up a two-by-four and again and again beat them over the head with it in some of the most horrible suffering and anguish and misery that any group of people have ever experienced in history, He did it for a reason. He did it because He loved the nation and He did it because they violated His standards. And if God did that to Israel in the Old Testament and we've got a greater Lord than they had in the Old Testament, if, if, if we have a greater revelation than they have in the Old Testament, if the church ages and the church is greater greater than Israel, the Old Testament, do you think we're going to escape? Not at all. God expects more of us because more has been given. And that's the thrust of what the writer of Hebrews is saying at this particular junction. It is a dire warning to the readers not to give up. He is saying, in light of everything that Christ is, in light of everything Christ has done and is currently doing for you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to pay the closest attention possible to everything we have been taught, lest we drift off course and reap incredible penalties and discipline in the same way that the Jews reap those penalties in the Old Testament. And so he says in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which at the first, that is the first of what? The first of the incarnation, which at the first of his ministry began to be spoken by the Lord. From the time that he was inaugurated in his ministry at the Jordan River to the baptism by John the Baptist. And was confirmed. There's that word again. It's the same word that we have back in verse 2 that was translated steadfast. Back there was the statement, for the word spoken through the angels came to be confirmed. And here it is that the word, the message spoken by the Lord was confirmed. Who? To whom? To us, second generation Christians, not those who witnessed what Jesus taught, not those who were eyewitnesses to his ministry, but it was confirmed to us through divine revelation by those who heard him. And there is embedded in this statement a subtle, not a definitive, but a subtle and clear statement, a recognition that revelation was coming to closure. It's confirmed by those who had already heard. The past tenses are here. Uh, past tenses here are very important. Okay, let's pay attention to what the verse is saying. How shall we escape? How shall we flee? How shall we get out from under? This divine discipline, the verb here is ekfugo, from the compound verb afugo, meaning to flee, plus the preposition ek, meaning out from. It's a future middle indicative. The middle voice is a dynamic middle for intensity. How shall we escape? The we indicates we as believers. It includes both the writer and his readers. That means he is treating them as if they are believers. He is assuming they are believers. He's not treating them as unbelievers. That's crucial for understanding Hebrews. Hebrews is not a book to unbelievers giving them warnings that they might not be saved. It is a book to believers giving them a warning that you've been given so much, you better not treat it lightly or God is going to bring serious consequences into your life both in time and in eternity. So how shall we escape if we neglect this 
great salvation. There is divine discipline. This is expanded on later in Hebrews in chapter 12. There in chapter 12, verse 5, we read, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. It's a clear statement that when we are disobedient, God, because He's a Father, because He loves us, is going to scourge us like a somebody being whipped with a uh, cat of nine tails. You will be chastened by the Lord. Don't be discouraged, though, when you go through that divine discipline. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and He scourges every son whom He receives. It's a sign of your legitimacy. If you go through that divine discipline because of disobedience, it just indicates that you are a legitimate member of the royal family of God and you've been disobedient and God is, t- is training you now through negative discipline, through punitive discipline. Verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten, he argues. But if you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. In other words, you're an illegitimate son. You're a bastard in the spiritual life. You're not really saved if you're not being disciplined for your disobedience. Verse 9, furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us. We paid them respect. Shall we not more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us to seem best to them. That is, our human fathers. When we were disobedient, they spanked us. Sometimes they got serious and they took out a belt, spanked us. Sometimes they had a homemade switch or they had a paddle. I remember my grandmother was a school teacher down in the barrio here, uh, down at Jones Elementary, and I went to visit her one time. She was just this sweet little white-haired lady, and she had this paddle. It was about like that and was about eight inches square on the end with half-inch holes bored in it. And those Mexican kids down there in the burial would, would smart-mouth her, and she'd take them behind the blackboard back in those days. You could do that. And they wouldn't sass her anymore. Just one pop from that. I tell you, I never did even think about sassing her after I saw her do that once. But that was back when parents could discipline children and teachers could discipline children because the culture understood the principle of authority and that the role of parents and teachers is to train children so that they can function as adults. You know, it's the same word, it's a similar word is used in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. There we read that all Scripture is given by is breathed out by God literally, and is profitable for what? Everybody ought to know this. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for what? Instruction. Except the Greek word there is paiduo, which means the discipline of a child. And it has to do with training and instilling discipline in a child. And training like that, there are really two aspects to discipline. There's a training discipline And there is a punitive discipline or a chastening. The training discipline is when the Lord takes us through various tests to give us opportunities to apply the the doctrine that we've learned, to take the things we've learned in the classroom of the local church and to put them into practice in our life. little application. If the local church isn't a classroom and you're not learning anything, then you end up failing the tests. And life gets pretty miserable as a believer, and now you're into punitive discipline. Punitive discipline comes in three wrappers. The first wrapper, the first kind, is warning discipline. This is seen in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This isn't a knock for salvation. Despite what some of you may have been told, Revelation 3.20 is addressed to believers. The verse before says that God loves them, and the verb there in the Greek is phileo, and God doesn't have phileo love for unbelievers. In the Scripture, only believers are the object of his phileo love because phileo speaks of an intimate love. It talks about an intimate familial kind of love. It is not the same as agape. And uh, the uh, people addressed there in Revelation 3.20 are believers, but they're out of fellowship. And so there's warning discipline. God is knocking to be back, let back into the church and to be part of their church and be part of their spiritual life and to have fellowship with them. 
Then you have intensified discipline. This is what is indicated in Hebrews 12.6, that if you're out of fellowship, God is going to discipline you with a scourge, with a whip, like a father will discipline a son. And then third, there is dying discipline, the sin unto death. If you stay out of fellowship long enough and are carnal long enough, then God's just going to take you out of the ball game. 1 John 5:16. Now Hebrews 2:3 says, "How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation?" What does that word neglect mean? It's the Greek word amaleo. It's the aorist active participle which indicates that the action of that verb precedes the action of that participle, precedes the action of the main. How shall we escape is a future tense. So preceding the escaping or the need to escape is the action of neglect. So that first comes the neglect, then comes the need to, uh, to, uh, to escape discipline. Uh, the aorist active indicative of amaleo means to overlook, to neglect, to treat something lightly or carelessly. To wake up in the morning and say, you know, I can sleep another hour or two. I'll just forego listening to that tape today. I won't show up at Bible class this morning. I'll just, I'm tired when I get home from work. I'm just not going to go to Bible class tonight. And this eats, eats us up after a while. We treat the word carelessly. We don't take it seriously. We don't realize this is the most important thing in our life. And then we come to the word salvation. Now, this isn't talking about justification, salvation. This is talking about glorification, salvation, where we're headed. How shall we escape if we neglect that destiny? See, we're in training right now. That's the point of the discipline. You're in training like a soldier in boot camp to prepare you for a future role a future responsibility. And so he is saying, how shall we uh, escape if we neglect so great, a, so great a salvation? You see, to understand the meaning of this word, we have to go back just a couple of verses to the last verse of chapter 1. Remember, there weren't chapter divisions or verse divisions in the original text. In verse 14 we read, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister... For those who will what? Inherit salvation. The concept of soteria in 1.14 is in relation to the previous quote in verse 13, which is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 1, which is talking about the time when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the end of the tribulation when God makes his enemies his footstools and he establishes the kingdom. So the context for soteria is not here today. The context for soteria is in the future, at the end of the tribulation period, at the time Jesus Christ returns to the earth to establish the Davidic, Messianic, 1,000-year millennial kingdom. Sorry, I'm so redundant, but I want you to get the point. So the concept of soteria in, in verse uh, 3 of chapter 2 and verse 14 of chapter 1 is informed by that whole string of Old Testament quotations given in chapter 1. You can't just go in and say, okay, how is soteria used in the rest of the New Testament? That doesn't tell you anything. It's how is it used here in relationship to these passages. And so that indicates from the Old Testament passage that the salvation had that future messianic uh, reign in mind. In the Old Testament, the concept of salvation to the Jews is always in terms of their deliverance from their enemies and their enjoyment of those blessings that God promised them in the land. Therefore, the meaning of salvation in Hebrews 1.14 and Hebrews 2.3 is related to the total deliverance from the enemies of God in the kingdom rule as defined by the six Old Testament quotes in the first chapter. So the salvation that we're talking about in verse 3 has to do with what happens in the future, that full realization of all of our blessings in training for ruling and reigning with Christ in the millennial kingdom. So the idea is, is if we're not focused on that personal sense of eternal destiny, 
then we're going to make mistakes today and God is going to discipline us just as severely as He did the Jews in the Old Testament because we're treating contemptuously or lightly or carelessly what God is doing in terms of our future destiny and training us for that. And this was initially spoken of by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. By those who heard Him refers to the disciples and those who were eyewitnesses to His ministry. Now, I realize it's 9 o'clock and we'll go over a couple of minutes because we can wrap up the next verse fairly rapidly. Hebrews 2.4 says, God also bearing witness. And this is a very important passage right here. God also bearing witness. The word there is soon epimartyreo. You can tell that the root is martyreo, from, which is the Greek word from which we get the word martyr. It means a witness. It has to do with giving legal testimony. So God also soon epimartyreo has to do with witnessing together with or at the same time as something. So God also bearing witness with those who heard, the eyewitnesses who heard Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very important concept. Soon epimartyreo is a present active participle. This is why grammar is important. A present participle means that the action of the participle is contemporaneous with the action of the main verb. The main verb in the previous sentence is that which was spoken by, which was confirmed to us. Let me go back and show it to you. It's that word, uh, uh, not babayas, it's, um, but it's, oh, it's to be spoken by the Lord. It's a past tense. It's an aorist tense. And so when you look at the bearing witness, it goes back to being spoken. That's the aorist tense. So that means that the action of soon epimartyreo is contemporaneous with a past action that's completed. Now, the, what that says is that God, even by the time of Hebrews 2, which was written late, remember this is probably about 65, 66 A.D., even by then the writer is recognizing that God is no longer bearing witness to His Word in the same way He did at the beginning of the church, which was through miracles, through, uh, let me back up, through signs and wonders, that's just another term for miracles, various miracles, dunamis, miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Those were restricted to the early stages of the church age because they didn't have a completed canon, because the apostles were there and it was authenticating their ministry. This is why you have the phrase listed in 2 Corinthians 12.12, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. That's the word miracles. See, there were signs of an apostle. To be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection, and you had to be directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. There are religious hucksters today who claim to have the gift of apostle, but none of them are old enough to have either witnessed the resurrection or been commissioned directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so no one today is legitimately giving signs and wonders and miracles because it violates the plan and purpose God had for those miracles. Now, there's a movement today called Signs and Wonders Movement that that came out of Southern California in the 70s and blossomed in the 80s, and the fruit turned rotten in the 90s, and today it's putrefying in all kinds of places. And it gave rise to this Pensacola revival and the Toronto blessing where people thought they were close to God because they ran around the church barking and yelping like dogs and laughing like hyenas. And this is just the height of blasphemy and dishonoring to God. But there are a lot of people today who don't learn the Bible. They just learn this kind of silly emotionalism, and they think that's Christianity. Ephesians 2.20 says that having been built, past tense, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. See, the apostles and prophets were the foundation, not the building. You only lay the foundation once, and that was laid in the first century. The church is built on top of that. So that the apostles and prophets aren't repeat, aren't, it's not necessary to repeat them from one generation to the next. Once is enough. Just like the miracles Jesus performed don't have to be report, repeated in every subsequent generation. Once was enough. They're reported by, 
eyewitnesses that give a recorded statement in the Word of God, and that's good enough for all eternity. God doesn't need to send a Messiah every generation. He doesn't need to send a Messiah with confirming signs and wonders in every decade or every century. Once is enough. So God bore witness to His revelation. See, that's what you see in this passage. These things were spoken by the Lord, and God bore witness to that revelation through miracles. They con- the purpose for miracles was to confirm revelation. When the revelation ceased with the closing of the canon, it was no longer necessary for these miracles to continue. And since their purpose ceased, God ceased uh, miracles. This isn't putting God in a box. This is accepting God's Word for what it is that he said that he would operate in different ways at different times. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. What's the conclusion here? The conclusion is that this is the first warning. It's a serious warning. It gets worse. These believers that are being addressed in this epistle are in danger of not just falling away from their Christian life and suffering some temporal discipline, but having uh, losing the ability to rule and reign as companions with the Lord Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom and into eternity. And this is so serious that the writer of Hebrews is giving them a, a, a strong uh, re- reprimand in these warnings that you must not fall away. You must treat this, the Scripture seriously and don't treat the Word of God in a casual manner because this matters not only for today but for all of eternity. We'll come back next time and start the second section in verse 5 uh, next Thursday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by these things, to recognize how you work down through history, how involved you are in the lives of your people, in the lives of your children, that your goal is to train us to imitate the character of Jesus Christ, to prepare us to rule and reign in in the millennial kingdom and in eternity. And, Father, we pray that we would be responsive to what you have taught us this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.